0: song by the Canadian rock trio Rush called Witch Hunt. Uh, it's worth checking out the lyrics to the song, pertinent to what's going on today in the cultural and political climate, and pertinent to our discussion today as well. It's worth mentioning that anytime you hear a Rush song, there's a good chance that there's a, a white, nerdy, middle-aged guy nearby, but hmm. good to check out the lyrics anyway. Our lecture is going to be all over the place today. We are going to start firmly, deeply, darkly planted in the realm of folk psychology. Then we're going to swing way the other direction um, to early scientific theories of mind. And we're going to finish up talking about three schools of thought that have been hanging around psychology for time out of mind. They've been there since the beginning and, and it looks like they're going to be there at the end. So let's jump in. Folk psychology has always been around and always will be around. You might have heard me mention in lectures before. It's one actually one of the hard things about our job is that most other people think that they could probably do it or at least have theories. If I am hanging around an accountant and um, they're you know they're talking about you know I don't know. A way to figure taxes or something and i i I wouldn't even think about jumping in and correcting them but you talk about adhd at the dinner table or something everybody has has a theory whether it's related to diet um or you know some vitamin deficiency there's a new thing now about finding a certain genetic code and i think taking a type of vitamin b folk psychology uh, left and right it's always been there and one of the things folk psychology did in the past, a function it served, it still serves the same function, but we didn't have science in the past to, to give us other explanations. But a, folk psychology has always tried to explain psychopathology in some form. And it's very understandable. This is something where we have to have a little little historical empathy. We have to see thing from those things from their zeitgeist. Uh, I have seen things working, working in, in psychiatric facilities before that if I did not have the training, I did, would probably make me think that there was something supernatural going on, that there was something frightening going on. And so you can understand why people came up with a lot of the ideas that they did. You know, Gre- Greco-Roman law historically always had provision for the insane and the incompetent and so forth, but there was always a sense of witchcraft, and there was always a sense of the of bad witches that that did harm, and they were they were commonly considered pariah. Um, there's really no time in history that does, and really no culture actually that doesn't have some concept of witches. Uh, it's just, you know. Hume points this out as an archetype for for a reason. It's every single culture has some version uh, of this, but something happens um, around the time of, of the Renaissance. Just kind of it sort of begins pre-Renaissance, lasts through post-Renaissance. There's Christianity changed things a bit because even though there's always been a notion of witchcraft in every culture there's always been the notion of of good witches and bad witches, black witches and white witches, if you will. What changes things is the, the Christian concept of individual sin and individual responsibility for sin. So this whole idea that the devil made you do it, kind of absolves responsibility if someone and you you know and I'm, please don't hear this in an exegetical way this is just me shooting from the hip not doing theology but w- the way that i read um things about demonic possession in the scripture i i never get the sense that somebody made an agreement you know made a deal with the devil to be possessed it's really cast as this is something that happened to them the christian era and the christian sense of sin changes that because now if I have supernatural powers, that means because I have free will, that means that I must have made some kind of, of pact with the devil. It, it could have been explicit, but it could also have been implicit. And this is where things get really crazy where, you know, you could, it's sort of, it's called, um, in the Latin. I don't, yes when I throw out Latin and Greek words, I'm not trying to represent that. I speak Latin. I just think it's, I don't know. Why do I say, I think it's cool. Um, we'll just leave it at that for now. I'll, I'll talk about it in therapy. Um, but a passitum implicitum means that maybe you made a pact with the devil and you didn't know it. It's it's not quite that, but it's almost that there, that there was sort of a somehow a wink and a nod or something happened. This meant that now you were responsible. If you had supernatural forces working on you and somehow, this meant that you were responsible. Or a witch was responsible for for doing something to you. So there were they there were on the book some some safeguards against prosecuting witches, but these were not followed. The the witch prosecution. When, you know when we talk about prosecution of witches, we usually think of what we think of New England. We 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 get this image of a bunch of pilgrims run around setting a witch on fire. that's not entirely wrong Um, but a a lot of this historically if not most of it took place in Europe Um, there was an interestingly in Europe a lot of the secular courts were actually more cruel because in most European nations and and this is true to some extent to this day, uh, you have a, a state religion. So in the United States, we have, you know, the, the government does not align with any religion, but you look at a country like England, you've got the church of England, etc. cetera. So a lot of times what, <laughs> what the, they were doing in these courts, like, Hey, I've got to impress the archbishop, you know, I've got to make sure that I'm in good with the church. So if I'm turning in a high number of which, prosecutions, which, which executions, that's going to make me look good with the people in power. It makes It's a very different cultural uh, arrangement. So back to individual sin, freedom of choice. The charge of witchcraft becomes a charge of heresy because it's willingly turning away from God. It's, it's, it's the unpardonable sin. It's willingly getting in league with the devil. So it's a grave offense, and there were pseudo, with a, <laughs> a capital pseudo, scientific tests that they would use to determine if somebody was a witch. Now, backing up a little bit, just to put a frame on this, we're not and to connect it back to psychology because it's important. As I said, there's always been some kind of folk psychology there always will be folk psychology coming up alongside the formal scientific the formal clinical discipline of psychology it's worth looking at at witchcraft the 1400s 1700s um it's worth looking at that because it's such a stark example uh, of what can happen so so let's get into to some of these pseudoscientific tests of witchcraft because they're actually kind of good exemplars and i'm using that word wrong they're good examples of of the kind of thing that happens in folk psychology um most of you have heard of these before flotation tests um, you know what happens if you if you suspend um you the, you, the bunch of men would suspend a woman uh, in water and then you release her if she floats she's a witch and that's just that if you're the one being tested, there are no good options for you there. You sink and probably drown, or you float and then they 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 do whatever they execute you. Um, so you... these people called witch prickers pick you with pick you with pins, and if there was a spot that you had no sensation then that meant you were a witch and of course what we were discovering at literally and i don't use that word very often literally the same time was that the skin sensation is highly variable depending on a number of factors and and not to mention the the different kinds of disease and disorders that can render certain areas without sensation even little things can can render an area without sensation so Again, something else that would get people accused and convicted. Um, the, the textbook for trying and prosecuting witches was something called the, the Malleus Maleficarum, uh, which, which I think translates, again, I don't speak Latin, but I think it's the hammer on the witches. Um, and so people are called in, priests, doctors for expert te- testimony. And you see... All of these women, and it would, yes, there were men sometimes, but it was largely women. Um, which, if you want something to talk about in our discussion groups, that's that's a good thing to talk about. We could we could chat about that for a while, um, but it was usually women. And finally, by the 16th century, um, there start to be some scientific challenges to these notions, and it was kind of, I don't know if you can use the word lucky when <laughs> we're talking about history, but it really you know, it really does. It is an interesting topic. I bet somebody's written a dissertation about this. Um, you know, the fact that you have this intensification in the prosecution of witches is coming because of, of the Christian notion of sin, um, and then you have that alongside this developing science that we're going to talk about just in a few minutes, um, it seems like a lucky thing that you've got this science coming alongside to say, hey, wait, we have a different understanding of uh, emotional, behavioral, mental problems now, a different understanding of the mind and, and these people are not witches. So by the sixteenth century you've got Johann Wehr's I'm not gonna try and pronounce it, it's you know the De prestigious demonium um, that this is something that doesn't deny the reality of witchcraft but at least starts to to bring a little bit of of science to it um one one test for witchcraft is called the tear test so somebody reads to you the story of the the crucifixion and if you don't cry then that means you're a witch okay there, there are problems lot of problems with that test to start with. Um, But one of the things that Vare pointed out was that sometimes older women um, tend to be more dehydrated, might not have water for tears, that kind of thing, or the or you know, if if a woman is very frail and very light, she might float. So we get some some limping moves towards a scientific perspective um, on this. And you know, and then in Burton's Anatomy, mel- melancholy starts to, to talk about diseases of the brain and madness um, in a way that, that emerges to fortunately usurp what was happening in the, in the you know, conceptualization and prosecution of witchcraft because thousands of people died, and it was a horrible thing. And it's, it's an example of folk psychology gone awry. Folk psychology is not bad uh, by definition. Um, folk psychology is awesome. I've been helped by a lot of folk psychology myself. You probably have too. You know whether it was we, we read a pop psychology book. I've written some Christian pop psychology books that I don't know. They, they can be folksy in parts. Uh, it can be good stuff. It 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 can be something that's accessible. Um, and simple, and we need that desperately in psychology. Oh my gosh, do we need that? The problem is that folk psychology doesn't have the accountability and it doesn't have the built-in kind of accountability that, that science and professional work does. So it can, it can get out of hand, and we see that with how witchcraft uh, was, was treated, And one of the things you can think about for discussion is, I don't know, are there examples of that now in contemporary history or other examples. We'll talk about plenty of other examples of folk psychology and and scientific psychology gone awry uh, in in our lectures. So, now we are going to take a hard If you want an example of just how much the 17th century in the West represents the emergence of the modern Western scientific tradition. (laughs) The word scientist wasn't really used uh, until the 17th century. People were called natural philosophers. And so the idea that, that someone was engaged in a specific scientific discipline really didn't emerge until this time. And you can understand why this happened. The 17th century was was the century of Descartes, it was the century of Bacon, it was the century of John Locke. Uh, there's this explosion in the West of knowledge and achievements and, and technology. Um, we're going to talk a lot about Locke in, in, in a second, um, and one of the things that's important to understand when we get to discussing John Locke's theory of mind is understanding that, that he was friends with Isaac Newton, and they, they and it was a very, very influential friendship, um, and very influential on his theory of mind. And so you've got—and and, I'm—I'm saying that to illustrate is that you've got all of these great thinkers um, in one—you know—in the same place in the same time in history, and books and books and books have been written as to why it happened. It wasn't an accident. There, there are a lot of things, in, historically, culturally, that were, were coming together to create this situation, and it's, it's a really interesting discussion. But, but the, for today, one of the things that, that I want to emphasize is that during the 17th century, the authority of science is really starting to supplant the, the authority of the church. Um, But this is a transition, and it's subtle and and gradual, it doesn't happen right away. You have witch trials and executions going on at exactly the same time that, you know, you've got Bacon publishing his Novum Organum. Um, So you've got these things coexisting with with science slowly but surely uh, starting to... to So Bacon publishes Novum Organum and it kind of is very very representative of the era in terms of scientific method and what he's putting forth is is what all these guys and they were guys they're saying there's a new intellectual sheriff in town and that's that's method that's experience and ultimately what we would come to call science uh, is is going to lead us to truth. Now it's it's hard to not get into a discussion about power here and how that affected thing, beca- things because sure we can say, the academy can say, this this is our method um, toward truth and solving problems but if the power structures that exist don't go along with that then that creates all kinds of problems. So Locke borrows heavily from Isaac Newton. Um, Newton, I'd love to spend more time talking about Newton. Isaac Newton's biography is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. He was, he was an interesting guy um, in so many ways. Um, he was a late sleeper. He would not get up until noon. He Well, he would wake up, but then he would lie in bed, staring at the ceiling, thinking <laughs> for a few hours. And it was well known that, that housekeepers like, couldn't get him out of his room um, in the morning to clean, stuff like that. Um, Newton also said that, that when he was nearing his death, asked, what what is your greatest achievement? And he said, lifelong celibacy. So... I think that's great. Uh, I would I would put you know um, his <laughs> his um, gravitational laws probably ahead of that. But hey, good for him. So log, log borrows from Newton, and one of the things that he borrows is this this theory of corpuscles. Um, Newton put forth what we would come to call later as particle theory about light. Uh, Newton said that, you know, there are all these corpuscles, these little particles um, that attracted to each other, that had energy and so forth, and that's what makes up light. Uh, What Locke does is he applies this to the theory of mind, and this is something that what he does here lays a foundation for so many theories of mind, behavior, sensation, perception that would come later on. This, and you're going to see it again, you're going to see it in, in structuralism, for example, uh, this whole idea that there are things, little things that attract each other and build up. So in the, the Locke theory of mind, um, basically you have all of these sensations and experiences that build up to make who you are, to make your mind. Locke, um, Locke looked at the idea, the idea of innate ideas in the platonic sense and he, he rejects this. He resurrects the Aristotelian notion of tabula rasa, which is something else that shows up in psychology over and over again. The idea that there were a blank slate at birth, and then experience just builds all of these, these things in us. And all of these ideas were hugely influential on a lot of... There's even... William James had a theory of religious conversion, where he talked about basically all these little sensations and not and ideas, religious values accumulating um, unconsciously, and then finally kind of bursting through in a in a religious conversion. So you have all of these these sort of corpuscle like things showing up in psychology after Locke, and after Newton. Something else that that I don't know if it exactly begins with Locke, but historically and in relative to psychology. We mostly start to see it with Locke and that's a method of introspection. Now I want to be really clear about what introspection means because it's going to be important for when it comes up again, when, when we're talking about some of these other seminal western thinkers. Introspection isn't, it's not trying to get insight. It's not trying to figure out why you do the things you do in a more deep psycho- psychoanalytic kind of sense. Um, introspection is very much a scientific method for Locke, for Wundt, for Fechner. Um, it's not l- just kind of looking at my thoughts and feelings. It's actually you have to be trained to, for how to examine sensations and perceptions, uh, which is one of the things that they, they, the early psychology concerns itself with most. You know, so, and we'll talk about this later, but how do I, as a scientist develop a method for examining mind, well, it has to be introspection. And, but, I again, I'm looking for the corpuscles. I'm looking for these little building blocks. We're going to finish up today talking about three, three schools, that three isms that have been around forever in psychology and, like I said, probably will be around forever. Empiricism, rationalism, and materialism and these these all emerge in what is typically called the Age of Enlightenment in philosophy. Um, So we've got empiricism that locates knowledge um, in the external world and perception and rationalism which Looks very closely at rational principles and the mind as the beginning of experience, and then materialism, that says that the only the only thing that's that's real, the only thing that we can say has existence has to be physical. Um, materialism is a very popular atheistic position, for example. All right, so let's let's just review these. Um, empiricism, John Locke, we we just discussed. Looking at you know those these base you've and Log acknowledged some innate ideas and like some original acts of the mind so it's things like you know we we innately know certain things like we can tell up from down uh, that kind of thing right. uh, but so we've got some foundational in, in innate ideas but then um, but then experience builds on this um, David Hume takes an even more skeptical view. Um, if you've got any hardcore atheists in your life, they probably thrown David Hume at you at some point. Um, he sees causation as, as very linear and says that when we're looking, one of the ways in, in psychology, uh, in our, excuse me, in personal psychology, that we develop the idea of causation is something called constant conjunction. Basically, when things occur close to a get to each other in time and or space, and and they do this consistently. They do it over and over. Human beings will assign causation, and he was absolutely right about this because <laughs> that's what we do. Uh, the good news, most of the time, we're right. Um, you know, I drop a glass, it breaks. There's a lot of causation <laughs> going on there that that in the Hempelian sense that we discussed on the first day would be considered a good scientific explanation there. Um, so. But I got there by associating those things in, in time and space. That's what we do. There's a, and so we develop, according to Hume's laws of association, um, we, the frequency of the pairing increases the association strength. Um, and also, just how th- how frequent it happens, and how close they are um, in space and time. And towards the end of the quarter, this is something that will come up again. Um, we w- human brains have a hard time with causation if things don't occur occur close together in space and time. When thing, if something, if the cause of something is far away, um, we don't. We basically we don't look there. And so that's because of this this hum, idea. Of of constant conjunction, um, Humean Hume Humean psychology. Well, they didn't call it that. Just David Hume um, suggests four personality types: Epicurean, the Stoic, the Platonist, and the Skeptic. Those are all very much what they sound like. A Platonist is an idealist. Um, some some other uh, imp- empiric, notable imp- empiricists, David Hartley, J.S. Mill probably most famous for talking satirical writing and then of course B.F. Skinner um, that you you know pretty well by now and you're going to know him a lot better <laughs> by the, by the end of, of this course so the point is then you can look in the notes and the reading for for some of the the specifics concepts but in general what the what empiricism does is what we just discussed it really it, it was it played an important role in replacing Authority replacing folk psychology, like witchcraft. Um, you know, when we're talking about truth, it's specifically when we're talking about human psychology. Rationalism. Now, just to, to throw this in, I actually a lot of people don't see the three of these as mutually exclusive. Um, I think the seminal thinkers um, that developed these schools of thought would disagree with me on that. But it, yeah, again, that's that's something that would be be interesting to discuss. So rationalism um, rationalism goes the other direction it says listen if if we all we are is just receptors for experience how do we have coherent thought that doesn't make sense and what they do what they bring to the fight is math and what people bring to math to the fight they often win um, and they have some really really cool mathematical examples so what the rationalists are, are getting at here is um, from Leibniz to my, my favorite, Immanuel Kant, um, what, what they, they do is they, they use mathematics as an example of the mind operating separate from experience. Um, for example, you all, everybody listening to this, we all know that there's no number that is so high that you can't add one to it. Um, so the number one billion, if I add one to it, it will be one billion and one. I have never counted to a billion before. I do not know this by experience. I know this rationally. That's why it's called rationalism through rational and deductive thought. And and you know in, in Leibniz's new essay on understanding, he you know he critiques Descartes and he critiques Latins. You know when Descartes says you know, or or, or excuse me when Descartes says um, you know they, there's you know we can't really know anything. Um, the way Leibniz would is the intellect itself, that there are things that are innate in the intellect. Um, One of the biggest philosophical um, proponents of this is Immanuel Kant. Um, And he says there have to be pure intuitions, first of all, of time and space for us to have experience and all, Um, back to to those those foundational um, experiences. Um, and moreover, we have categories of understanding, and here's where we start to get into cognitive psychology a little bit. It's interesting when, you know, if we think about our, our usual, like, notions when we talk about empiricism, when we talk about cognitive psychology, or like, we're usually thinking of something like CBT, evidence-based therapies. Cognitive psychology, historically, is actually very different, and, it's, and, and Kant, interestingly, s- sets us up for cognitive psychology and Piaget and all these guys that would come later. Um, in thinking, okay, there actually has to be a way that the mind works, and innate ideas in the mind to interpret experience and use experience. It can't. We're not tabula rasa. It's not just experience on a blank slate. That wouldn't work. It would just be a mess. There has to be um, some software, so to speak. And that's that's not my metaphor. That that metaphor becomes really really important when we get into the mid twentieth century for psychology. Kant's categorical imperative, you you act in such a way that you treat humanity whether in your own person or in the person of any other, never merely as a means to an end but always at the same time as an end. Uh, A little Kantian philosophy I think would be good for for my evangelical brothers and sisters nowadays. Uh, Basically Kant says you do something just because it's right. You you and you don't do something just because it's wrong. It's it's the opposite of utilitarian mor- morality. And I don't know if it's the opposite, but it's it's definitely distinct from it. It's you do things you do things because they are right, and and there's a way for us to know this innately. Um, materialism. Anything real is reducible to matter or some aspect of matter, and there's, there can't be any, it basically if something is, exists it has to be material, and that's where you get the name materialism. There are many, many, many that believe, maybe even some of you listening to this that think one day psychology will be reduced completely to physical organization, in other words the brain and the nervous system um that basically will be able to understand psychology completely in a physical sense now this is what neuroscience uh is is about um no, another thing that would be fun uh, to to discuss with you all so you've got hobbes and 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 gall and and basically saying that the, and we're going to see this theme come up again that the body is mechanical uh, and if it functions according to mechanical principles Uh, One of the things that I'll come back to in another lecture um, is, and I'm sure, (laughs) I know there have been books written about this, when you look at the influence of technology, um, new technology on philosophy, what will happen when it comes to theories of mind especially, you'll often see the technology of the day used as a metaphor for, for understanding psychology, so this whole idea um, you know, Alfred de Lemaître, He's has the idea that, that man, you know, is, is a machine and a soul is merely an enlightened machine. And you're going to understand the mind by understanding the brain. Uh, that's a great example of, of materialism in psychology. Now, a couple things about the Age of Enlightenment and the Renaissance before, before we start moving into modern psychological science. Uh, a few things that I think that are important to remember. One, there's sort of this misconception out there that um, that when Rome fell, we immediately entered the Dark Ages and everybody started eating worms and practicing witchcraft and, and, and fighting each other all the time. Uh, there's some truth in that. Uh, but also during that period, uh, you have Christian scholasticism and these great monasteries where all this great learning is going on. And then in the age of enlightenment, then, you know, when the age of enlightenment come, I th- comes, I think that, you know, people have the idea of Voltaire showed up and then, then, I don't know, people stopped eating worms and started dressing well and, and going to see a doctor and stuff like that. That's not at all how it happened. Um, it was very gradual, very patchy. Um, you have great scientific achievement going on right next to, you know, things that are, are really ugly and, and immoral at the, at the same time. Um what happens to religion during this era is is huge and, and its relevance to psychology and starts to change drastically. You know, in the, the time of the Christian era, if we're just stick to Christianity, Augustine and early church fathers very influential on, on Christian notions of psychology. And that starts to shift. But one of the things that I think that's important to note is that the age of enlightenment was not the age of atheism. Pretty much all of these guys, and again, they were guys, uh, white ones, um, but they, they believe in God in some way. You, but you start to get kind of these these really interesting metaphysical treatments uh, of God that fit with their philosophies. Um, you know, Descartes said that God is good and proof that knowledge won't, won't deceive. Um, Berkeley saw that as, you know, and for Berkeley, Something is just real to us, just if if we see it, so to speak. God is the ultimate observer that makes us all real. Uh, in your notes and on, on page one seven of, of Sherev, um, there's there are some some other examples of this. So I just think it's it's interesting that um, we are so quick to associate science with atheism, agnosticism, that kind of thing. It, it's actually a lot of fun to go back and look at. A lot of these enlightenment thinkers and their ideas about God, they're actually really cool and they incorporate scripture and, and all kinds of things. So if you ever want to plow through some old books and get some type, something that could even kind of kinda of feed your own, you know, your own reflection about God, things like that, they can be it can be a lot of fun. I'm going to leave you with, yes, another song by Rush. This one is called Natural Science. Thank you, as always, for your kind attention.